pray, they would address God in terminology such as, O God of Abraham, O Blessed One, O Holy One. There was no sense of relating to God as Father. So I think that's the first thing they would learn from the prayer life of Jesus, his intimacy in prayer. Just before we look at the content of the pattern that Jesus gives us, do notice, please, two very important things about prayer. Number one, our motive in prayer is crucial. When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. They love to pray, standing in the synagogues to be seen by men. Don't do that. Go into the secret place to pray. So never have the promotion of yourself as an ambition in your prayer life. And then secondly, you'll notice the succinctness which Jesus looks for in prayer. Verse 7, when you pray, don't keep on babbling like the pagans. They believe, they feel that they will be heard for their many words. No, the Lord Jesus wants reality in our prayer lives. Uh, some prayers are, are beautifully designed, aren't they? And the, the terminology is exact, and that can be great. Some of the liturgy of the Church of England, for example, is beautiful, and it will help you to think through uh, certain aspects of prayer but there should be that intimacy in our personal prayer lives and that succinctness. We shouldn't be worrying about the big words, the terminology which we might be using. It should be an intimate, personal, real relationship with God. So let's look at the pattern together. When you pray, says Jesus, say these words, Our Father, Abba in heaven or in the heavens. That phrase, in the heavens, doesn't mean so much the place where God is, but it means the power which is at his disposal. Notice the intimacy here and the reverence. Yes, he is our father, but he's in the heavens. He's intimate. We have that father-son relationship but he's also far removed from us in another sense. He's in the heavens. He's sovereign and his power is great. And in my own prayer life, I always seek at the beginning of a time of prayer just to stop and for a few moments or a few minutes even to remind myself of the greatness of the God whom I am addressing to remind myself that he is God in the heavens. He is sovereign. He is all-powerful. And then to realize, and it never ceases to amaze me, that this great, awesome, powerful God is my Abba. He is my Father. And I am encouraged to have an intimate, though always reverent, relationship with him. Once you've realized who you're praying to, your primary concern becomes his name. 
hallowed be your name. Now, when you read the word name in a passage of Scripture like this, it means the person who bears that name. So we're praying here that in the world and through our lives, the glory of God's character will be seen. His name, his person, will be hallowed. The majority of us here this evening, I imagine, have been baptized into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And now we're praying that that name, that person, that character, his glory will be seen through our lives and in the world. Don't you remember Jesus as he approached the cross? John's Gospel tells us, you see here the humanity of Jesus, that he approached the cross, he was deeply troubled. The thought of becoming the sin-bearer filled the Lord Jesus with a sense of revulsion. But from deep within his spirit, John chapter 12, came that cry, Father, glorify your name, hallow your name. And all over the world tonight, millions of people, tens of millions of people are with us, worshipping the Lord Jesus Christ. We're worshipping God the Father. And that deep cry of the Lord Jesus has been answered. As I go to the cross to become the sin bearer, Father, glorify your name through my sacrifice. And millions are hallowing the name of God today because of that prayer and that work of the Lord Jesus. Of course, the great horror of sin is that it defiles the name of God. Rather than hallowing his name, my sin defiles his name. Remember David, Psalm 51, after the adultery with Bathsheba and the arranged murder of Uriah, Naaman comes and, and reveals his sin to him. And David cries against you, and you only have I sinned. He realized that primarily his sin, though it's against Bathsheba, though it's against Uriah, primarily that sin is against God. It defiles rather than hallows the name of God. I remember a young man who came into my office 10 years ago, I guess. He'd fallen into moral sin and he'd gone to the newspapers and um, he was weeping in my office and he said, you know, I've shamed my my, my parents, uh, I've shamed my, my friends, I, I, I've, I've shamed my church. And he went on and on and I let him go. And then at the end, I said to him as graciously as I could, you know, you haven't said to me so far that what you've done has shamed the name of God. And I think until you understand that, brother, you're never going to understand the seriousness of your sin and you're never really going to be able to truly repent against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. 
That's what Jesus tells us to pray. Father, in the heavens, would you hallow, would you glorify your name through my life rather than your name being defiled through my sin? Will you hallow your name through the life that I live? Now, if you look at the rest of the pattern, you'll see that every other petition in this pattern is governed by this first petition. Your kingdom come, because that will hallow your name. Your will be done, because that will hallow your name. Give me for today my daily bread, if that hallows your name. Sometimes it may be a good thing. It may glorify your name. If I go without certain things, if that's the case, then may I go without those things because I want your name to be hallowed. Here's Wang Ming Dao. And for 40 years, he goes without many things, many things which you and I would struggle to go without. But God's name has been hallowed through those things being restricted in Wang Ming Dao's life for that period of time. Look at the next two petitions. Your kingdom come, your will be done. The Hebrews tended to say everything twice. They would say it one way, and then they would say it another to emphasize the point. And here's an example of that, because, of course, God's kingdom comes when God's will is done. As we pray this prayer, as I've said, we see millions of people bowing in submission to the Lord Jesus around the world. If the facts are right, maybe 30,000 Chinese today have bowed the knee in submission to the Lord Jesus. That's the sort of number of people who are coming to faith in China every day. I picked up a copy of the Financial Times weekend supplement not so long ago. Well, I guess it must be more than a year ago now. On the front of the uh, cover of the weekend supplement of the Financial Times was a depiction of Jesus. And the title or the heading was China's Other Leader. And the center page article of the Financial Times weekend supplement described how the Chinese government fears anything it cannot control. And the one thing it cannot control is the growth of the Christian church within its borders. There are now many, many more times believers in Jesus than Communist Party members in China. And they can't control it. What happens when these thousands, in fact millions of people, come? Well, his kingdom comes. His will is being done in that nation. Quite a prayer to pray when you think about it, isn't it? It can trip off your lips very easily, can't it? Your will be done in my life. Listen to Martin Luther commenting on that phrase. Grant me the grace to bear willingly all sorts of sickness, poverty, disgrace, suffering, adversity, And to recognize that often in this, your divine will is done. My will is crucified. Your will is done. 
Maybe we should think again before we allow those words just to trip off our lips. Your will be done, not mine. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Kenneth Bailey points out that as you pray these two petitions, you're saying that you have a particular philosophy of history. The Greeks of Jesus' day believed, as many believe today, that history was a series of events moving in circles so that what happens will ultimately come around again. But this prayer reveals that Christians believe history has a big picture. It's moving towards a point of destination. And that, of course, is the day of the Lord. And we are praying for that day to come. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Do you imagine that day? Do you have to sit back and imagine heaven? We don't know a terrible deal about heaven, to be honest. But if you read some of the scripture passages on, on heaven, it makes you get very excited if you believe them. The apostle Peter, he calls heaven the home of righteousness. Isn't that a beautiful idea? The home of righteousness. I think of a place where there's no cancer, where there's no disease, where there's no death, where there's no pain, where there's no temptation, where there's no beating down of the weak by the strong. And when I think about it, I think, bring it on. Bring it on, Lord. The sooner, the better. Thy kingdom come. We believe history is moving towards a definite point. It's not circular. The day of the Lord will come. And you know, that's one of the great um, motives, I guess, in discipleship. If you really believe, if I really believe that history is moving towards a point, the day of the Lord, when I'll see Jesus face to face, that is going to impact my life hugely. Martin Luther said this, there are only two days in my diary. There's today, and there's that day. That day when I'll stand before Jesus. And every day, every today, I live in the light of that day. How I spend my time, how I spend my energy, how I spend my money today, I make those decisions in the light of that day. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Now, if you look at these three petitions together, you'll see how radical this prayer is. Your name, your reputation is more important than mine. Your kingdom is more important than my personal empire. I submit all my desires, all my ambitions, all my goals, and I say, your will be done. It's a very radical prayer when you really examine it. 
Well, I don't know where that's 25 minutes went. That's ridiculous. But uh, I do want to just briefly touch on the second half of the prayer. You've got three petitions in the second half of the prayer as well. If you look at very briefly, you'll see those three petitions. Give us, forgive us, and deliver us. Give us, forgive us, and deliver us. Three simple petitions which bring the whole of our lives into the presence of God. Kenneth Bailey makes this point. He says, when we ask for bread, that is our daily needs, we're thinking of today. And we're looking to God the Father, the creator, the sustainer of our lives. When we ask for forgiveness, we're looking back. And we're looking to the Lord Jesus, our Savior and our Redeemer. And when we ask to be delivered from temptation, we're not just looking at today, but we're looking at the future as well. And our thoughts are directed to God the Holy Spirit, asking him to strengthen us and to help us as we face temptation. Now remember, this is a pattern for our prayers. So think of this pattern. It's a wonderful thing to stop and to remember who you're speaking to, the greatness of God, who is your Abba. And then to stop and to look back and to ask the Lord Jesus for forgiveness. And to look around you and ask God the Father to provide for you. And look at today and tomorrow and the future and all the struggles and trials of life. And ask the Holy Spirit to encourage you lead you and strengthen you. Give me just three minutes. I've got a longer drive than most of you after this, so be patient. Just give me a few minutes to delve into these three petitions for a moment or two. Give us this day our daily bread. It's a shock, isn't it? It's a shock, if you're honest, to have such a mundane petition in this prayer. Jesus has been talking about the greatness of God, the glorifying of his name, his kingdom, his will. And in the next breath, he's talking about your and my daily bread. Isn't it wonderful to realize that this great God who is concerned about his will being done in this world is equally concerned about your daily bread and mine. The only difficulty in this petition is this word, day. And there's a great discussion about its translation. Give us today, give us for the day, give us day by day. There's actually books written about which of the Greek translations would be right. Amazing how theologians spend endless hours answering questions no one is asking. One thing is very clear, isn't it? One thing is very clear. Jesus doesn't teach us to stockpile. He's not teaching us to pile up stocks because of an uncertain future. It's all about today. Give us for today. Give us for the day our daily bread. Takes me back to Proverbs 30 
and verse 8, where the writer says, Give us neither poverty, lest I resent you, or riches, lest I forget you. And we shouldn't spend our time. Jesus was very clear about this. We should not spend our time worrying about tomorrow. What are you going to eat? What are you going to drink? The clothes you're going to wear? No, Jesus says. That's what pagans do. Don't be like them. Why? Because, come on, you've got this sovereign Father in heaven, and he's your Abba. He's going to provide for you. Now, um, where shall I go next? If we need bread daily, we also need forgiveness daily, don't we? I certainly do. And how thankful I am for the words of the Apostle John, the blood of Jesus Christ goes on cleansing us, present continuous tense, goes on cleansing us from all our sin. I need daily bread. I need daily forgiveness. It's very challenging, isn't it, to see that that daily forgiveness is conditional. Did you recognize that in verses 14 and 15? If you forgive others when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you don't forgive, you won't be forgiven. Again, that might shock some of you. You might say that's salvation by works. I'll be forgiven if I forgive. No, not at all. Jesus told a powerful story to make this point. You remember the story? There were two debtors, and one man owed 300, um, well, there's a huge amount. It was uh, actually the, uh, the annual revenue for the whole province of Galilee. So Jesus is choosing a, a figure to shock. Uh, this man could never have repaid his debt if he'd lived to 2017. He'd never have repaid his debt. And he goes into the presence of the man he owes the money to, and he is completely forgiven. What happens? He goes out, he finds a guy who owes him a daily wage of a working man. And he grabs him by the throat, and he says, pay me everything you owe me. And if you read the passage, Jesus is very, very strong in his condemnation of that man. Why? Because obviously, he has not appreciated just how much he has been forgiven. He could never deal in the way that he did with this man who owed him if he appreciated how much he'd just been forgiven. And if we live lives of unforgiveness, this is serious stuff, folks. If we live lives of unforgiveness, it's proof positive that we've never really understood the cross. You can come and you can break bread and you can sing hymns. But if you hold a grudge against your brother or against your sister, you must realize you have not understood the cross. You have not understood how much you've been forgiven. You cannot be forgiven so much and become an unforgiving individual yourself. Now, of course, when you've been damaged in life, 
Sometimes that ability to forgive takes a long, long time emotionally for you to grasp. What I'm talking about is the, inverted commas, Christian person who says, I'll never forgive. I want to be equal, I'll never... If you have that kind of attitude, it's proof positive that you've never understood the cross. We need daily bread, we need daily forgiveness, and then finally, of course, we need daily guidance. Lead us not into temptation and deliver us from the evil one. When you pray that, you're, you're confessing, you're, you're realizing that you walk a dangerous road. You've got forgiveness for the past, and you're desperate to be delivered from the evil one and his advances in the future. And by praying this petition, you're saying, Father, I need your help. Satan is strong. But with your help, we together can defeat him. So take me by the hand. And don't allow me to be led into temptation that is overwhelming. My uh, oldest granddaughter, I can't believe it, started university yesterday. And I texted her to say, Erin, as you go into that hall of residence at 11 o'clock yesterday morning, I want you to realize that Jesus is with you. And he's holding his hand out. Erin, put your hand in his hand. And let him lead you into that hall of residence. Let him lead you as you meet your fellow students. Let him lead you and honor and hallow his name throughout your three years in university. Well, we could go on a long time, couldn't we? How do we pray? Well, we pray with the right motive. We pray not using huge words or not feeling that is necessary. This is intimate relationship, father-son, father-daughter. But it's intimate relationship with God who is in the heavens. His concerns, his name, his kingdom, his will are our priorities. But that doesn't mean we neglect our own needs. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are there to help us. Father to provide, Son to forgive, Holy Spirit to lead and empower. It's no wonder, is it, that in many of the manuscripts, not all of them, but in many of the manuscripts, this pattern ends with those words we're very familiar with. Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Just pause, Father, to realize that you are in the heavens. You're the sovereign. You're on the throne. It's not Trump or Putin or anybody of that ilk. You're on the throne. And we bow before you, amazed that we can address you as our Abba, as our Father, that you are concerned about our bread tomorrow. Lord, please stop us worrying about such things and trust implicitly in you. Please help me, Lord, to live for your glory, not for my reputation, but for your glory, for your prayers. 
Lord, I do want, I want to want your will in my life. And I pray that for my brothers and sisters here this evening as well. Lord, please, if there are those who have hurt us, upset us, sinned against us, help us to have that desire to forgive. Even though emotionally that might be a long road, please help us to have that desire to forgive as we have been forgiven. Thank you, Lord, for the enormous privilege of prayer. What a blessing for our daily lives. We rejoice in Jesus' name. Amen.